0: Turn, if you will, to our last and final message coming from Jude's epistle. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Jude 24 and 25. 25. Hear with me the reading of God's Word. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Imagine, brothers and sisters, if you and I, each and every individual here, had the responsibility of keeping yourself in the faith. In light of all that we've read thus far that Jude has written to the saints, these false teachers trying to get the saints to follow after their sinful practices, sexual immorality, rebellion, rejection of authority, acting like uncontrolled animals, going after every passion which inflames them. We're told they were complainers, never satisfied, Loudmouth boasters showing favoritism, and this is what you were surrounded by constantly. These people trying to exercise authority over you. Would you succumb to temptation over time? Would you accept it? Would you even participate in it? Or do you think by your own power you could withstand? Do you think you could? Or even in our own social context today. With all the pushback we get from the world which has made its way into the church, do you think by your own power could you keep yourself in the faith? The pressure from the world to accept all relationships as normal. To accept all people's behavior as their kind of personal expression of who they believe themselves to be. Who they say God made them to be. Would you over time give in to these new new moral norms? Or would you contend for that faith once for all delivered to the saints? Or looking, remember, a couple weeks ago at verse 22 and 23. Jude says that we are to be those who are building ourselves in the faith, keeping ourselves in the love of God. Some people might read that and say, see, it's up to us. It's our works. It's our good deeds. It's by our power and strength that when Christ returns, we will enter eternal glory. It's up to us as long as our good always are bad. God may have saved us initially, but now it's up to us. Do you think you could keep up? Do you think that you could maintain the faith? Is that a doctrine that would stir up joy in your hearts? To me, it sounds rather terrible. Because it would be a life of uncertainty spiritually. Am I going to heaven or am I not? Perhaps one week you we have a really good week. You pray morning, noon, and evening. You read your scriptures each and every day. You come to the, uh, the Lord's Day with great joy. You serve Him the entirety of the day. And so that night you think to yourself, man, if there's ever a time He's going to come, I hope it's tonight. Because I know for sure I'm in. But perhaps the next week, you've got a real busy week. And so you neglect prayer. You neglect reading your scriptures. Perhaps you even neglect coming to the Lord's Day for no good reason. Just think, ah, sleep in today. Well, that evening when you're in bed, you probably think to yourself then, well, if there's ever a time for Him to come, I hope it's not tonight. Because certainly I don't think I will be in. What a tragic way to think though. Yet, how many of this world's religions is works-based? They all are. See, but the Christian faith is different. We know that by our own power and strength, we cannot keep ourselves in the faith. See, Christianity is different. And is grounded in historical reality. Christ coming, taking upon Himself flesh, living, dying, being raised, and now exalted in the heavens. And so that faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints, is an objective faith. It's fact. And you and I can know truth for certain because that faith has been implanted to us by the Holy Spirit. And so that faith that we have is a supernatural faith. It's not a natural faith. It's a supernatural faith which has been implanted inside you and I. What does John say in 1 John 5, verse 13? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know with certainty that we are residents of that heavenly city. Brothers and sisters, what a glorious reality it is to have full assurance, to know that we are heaven bound. And that one day if we sin, it doesn't put us out. Because if that was the case, we'd all be out. But those whom Christ saves are those whom He's died for are those whom He will keep and promises to raise up on the last day. The faith that you have been given is a faith that will never depart. Certainly, there might be some moments in our life where our faith plummets, it decreases. There will be times where our faith increases. It ought to always be increasing. But regardless, the faith you have will never completely leave you. You will always be kept in the faith. If you are those who are called, if you are those who are loved and the kept that Jude has described in his opening greeting, then you will never lose faith completely. And so this is the message that Jude delivers to the saints in his closing of his letter here. It's one that gives them great encouragement in the midst of trials and temptations. It is delivering to them the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And so this morning, what we want to look at is what is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So that is our first point this morning. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And then our second point will be, in light of the doctrine, of learning what this doctrine is, what should our response be? So the first point, doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The second point, what is our response? So then to begin first looking at the doctrine itself, it is probably good to begin with a, a good working definition of what is perseverance of the saints. And so, one good definition I found comes from Wilhelmus Abrakel who defines it as this Perseverance of the saints is a gracious and powerful operation of God, whereby he preserves the spiritual life and faith in the truly converted in such a fashion that it can neither self-destruct nor be extinguished or removed by their enemies, the devil, the world, or the flesh. Instead, they will most certainly attain eternal felicity. It is a gracious and powerful operation of God. You see, you and I, brothers and sisters, can make promises, but we don't have the power nor the ability to follow through on them all the time, do we? Here is a great difference between the creature and the Creator. Our promises are limited because our power is limited. But such is not true with God. We've probably all, in our day, watched a crime show or two. And you know what always happens. There's this victim um, of some terrible crime. And here comes the detective walking up. And what does the detective usually always say? I promise you, I will find who did it, and they will be brought to justice. But can the detective really give such a promise with such certainty? No, they can't. Their ability to find the perpetrator and to bring them to justice is contingent on so many factors. Right? Was there eyewitnesses around who can ID the suspect? Did they leave physical evidence behind, DNA? Uh, does the perpetrator himself have a guilty conscience and turn himself in? So, even the ability to find out who did it is contingent on the community to come forth, uh, science or the guilty conscience of the perpetrator. And even if you do find out who it is, in order to fulfill your promise and bring them to justice, you need a a DA who's willing to uh, uh, bring him to prosecution. You need a grand jury willing to indict. And then, even if all that is true, you need 12 jurors who agree that he's guilty. And so you see, for the creature promises are contingent because our power is limited. But with the Creator is not so. This is why Jude can open in verse 24 saying, Now to Him who is able. Christian, we serve a God who is able. A God who is all-powerful. A God by His very Word who brought all things into existence. A God through His power who holds all things together. And so, that which He wills, He performs. This is what Job himself acknowledges in Job chapter 42 when he repents to God. In verse 2 he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's power is unrivaled his purposes will come to fruition remember the very words of jesus in john chapter 10 is he is in the synagogues with the jews and they say tell us plainly if you are christ and what's his response i told you but you don't believe but my sheep hear my voice and they believe and no one will snatch them from my hand god has determined to keep us and so it will be or remember the story of noah in genesis where God says, He declares, I am going to destroy every living thing on this earth. So Noah, build an ark. Take your family with you. Take the animals that I send with you there as well. And God, by His power, has it rained 40 days and 40 nights, destroying everything He determined to destroy. Yet God, by His very same power, as those waters rose above the very mountains, it could not touch the ark It could not destroy Noah. It could not destroy his family or those animals. See, God determined something to take place and He accomplished it exactly how He purposed it. And so we, brothers and sisters, can take solace in the fact that those whom He calls, He justifies and He will preserve until the end. Nothing or no one can alter the plan of God. And so we ask, well who is it that he preserves? It's the saints. He preserves the saints. It's Job, it's Noah, it's you and I. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5 says this. Blessed be God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. See, it is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith. We are being kept in Christ through faith. Apart from faith, you and I don't have the power to keep ourselves in. Our earthly power could not do it. We don't have the ability to please God. What is that famous passage of Paul that we can all probably rehearse? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel is something powerful to the believer. It declares to us the very power of God. In it, we hear that God sent His Son to die for a people, to be raised up and now is exalted, reigning in heaven, having accomplished all He set out to do. That message proclaiming what has already been done is one which sets forth before our eyes the very power of God. We see that God set out a plan, brought it to fulfillment, and is able to do so because He is all-powerful. And to us, to you and I, to those whom He enables to receive His message, the very Gospel itself comes with power. It comes with power. It's efficacious when it comes to us accompanied by the Holy Spirit. It transforms and it changes sinners. Now we are able to do that which God has commanded. This is important to understand in light of those verses we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Verse 24 or 22 and 23, where Jude had told the saints, keep yourselves in the faith. Be building yourselves up in the faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Because we said earlier, some people might take that and say, see, it's up to you. But no, now in this verse, Jude tells us why we can keep and step with it, that duty. It is because of the grace of God. God has given us the ability to act in accordance with His will. You see, it is through the giving of the Gospel. It is through the granting of you and I saving faith. It is through the giving to us the Holy Spirit. It is through giving us His written Word to be heard preached. It is through the administration of the sacraments that we receive that we are being kept for Christ until He returns. These are the instruments God uses which cause us, which enable us to continue until the very end. Yet, we might ask well, how else is Christ keeping us from falling away? Well, another way he's keeping us is through the establishment of his gracious covenant with us. Christ, in his mediatorial office, as high priest, has offered himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. And now he lives to make intercession for us, those in this gracious covenant. Which is why Jude can say here that He is going to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. For He was a perfect Savior whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of yours and my sin. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 verse 15 can say this, Therefore, He is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since the death that has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. As you see, brothers and sisters, this new covenant is not like the old. How is it different? Well, the old covenant could be broken. The old covenant said, do this and live. But the new covenant has been accomplished in the blood of Christ Jesus. Jesus. So all those whom He has justified, whom He is sanctifying, He is bringing to glorification. For we belong to, the author of Hebrews says, a better covenant enacted on better promises. Like the promise we find of God in Jeremiah. Chapter 32, verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, God says, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put my fear in their hearts that they will not turn from me. Brothers and sisters, you see that we are partakers of a better covenant, one that cannot be broken. As God has put the fear of Himself within each one of us, within our hearts, that we would never turn away from God completely. And God has promised to never turn away from us. And we can bet the house on that, so to speak. We can bet the house on that promise. Because of the immutable nature of God's will. God's will does not change. One day we're not in, and then He changes His mind, and the next day we're out. For even though we sin still daily before the Father, it is the Son who is at the right hand of God displaying His atoning work to the Father each and every day for us, on our behalf, so that He may present us blameless before the presence of His glory. You see, this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a sure doctrine because God's covenant is a sure covenant. And so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and I? Well, it means that apart from the grace of God, there is nothing that you and I could do to keep ourselves in the faith. It is by God's power alone, not ours, that we are being preserved. You see, this field, this world is filled with so much temptation you and I could not withstand. In our introduction, recall I asked, if we were in the spot of the saints that Jude writes to, could we keep ourselves, could we resist from following after their sinful practices? Or even in this world, with the changing moral norms, could we resist them? or Or would we follow after them after a period of time? Would we... Succumb to the pressures of the outside world? Well, it should be an obvious answer to each and every one of us. Each and every one of us would fail and falter if left to ourselves. To work out the Christian life apart from the power of God means failure. 100% fail rate. No one passes. But Christian, good news, we don't have to worry. Am I in or am I out? For what does Paul say in Romans eleven twenty nine? He says, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The God who called us is the God who will keep us. For those whom He has set His love upon, He loves with an everlasting love. What a thought. Sinners such as us are loved by God with an everlasting love. We who are enmity with God by His grace are now adopted sons and daughters and He loves us now as His very own children and will never let us go. Think of this example. We've all seen the father carrying his small child and the small child's arms are are wrapped around the father's neck and the father's arm is wrapped around his son's waist. And so, To some, it may seem like the the son is holding himself up. He may even think it himself. He's the reason why he's around his father, because he's holding himself up. But if the father were to remove his hand from his son's waist, the son's arms would grow weary, and soon he would fall off. Because in reality, it was the father the whole time who was holding his son up, even though his son's arms were wrapped around his neck. Likewise, brothers and sisters, it is not you and I who are holding ourselves to God, who are keeping ourselves in the faith. Rather, it is God who has that firm grasp upon you and I, assuring that we will receive that heavenly inheritance, assuring that we are those who will be preserved unto the very end. And so what should the response be for you and I in light of this doctrine of the perseverance of saints? Well, this brings us to our second point. Our response should be the very same response of Jude, which is to praise God. To be so enamored with our Lord, how incomprehensible His being, how perfect His ways, that we break forth into doxology. Glory speech. Words of praise to our heavenly God. Just like we did this morning. Recall, we read... The law we've seen how we were transgressors of the law deserving of death Then we turn and we read the gospel and we've seen that although we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins jesus christ died for our sins we have been united to him we are now partakers of that heavenly inheritance we've been saved by grace through faith as a gift of god And so, upon hearing that, we ought to break forth in doxology. We praise God for who He is and what He has done for us in Christ. And there are so many examples of this we could find in Scripture. Praising God for what He has done. I'll give you two quick ones. First, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 8 through 20. Uh, For time's sake, we won't read through it all, but I'll quickly paraphrase. If you recall, the angel of the Lord comes to the shepherds in the field and he tells them that the Savior is being born. He is being born in this manger in swaddling clothes. He tells them to go there and to tell Mary and Joseph of what they have been told. And so they go there and they see the Savior. And as they were returning, it records them saying that they were glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. See, they praise God for revealing this to them, to seeing for themselves a Savior in a manger in swaddling clothes. And so in response to the grace shown to them, in the truthfulness in which God had displayed to them, they could not help themselves but glorify God. Brothers and sisters, is this our response to God? When He works in our life, is our response to praise Him? Or is it to take what He does for granted? To say like, to behave as if, "Ah, well, He just should have did that. He's God, right? Or you can look at the example of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. If you recall, they were beaten and thrown in prison for preaching the Gospel and for healing the sick. And in verse 25 it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. In this example, praise is being offered to God even though these men were beaten, their feet fastened to their jail cells. They were thrown in jail. Their situation was less than ideal to say the least. Yet they knew that God was working everything out for their good as they were proclaiming the word as He had called them to do. And so praise was their response to affliction because of what God was doing in their life, knowing that they were doing what God had commanded. We find it so hard to praise God even in good times. We usually like to pat ourselves on the back when things go well and say, give ourselves the credit for it, let alone praise God. I mean, would we praise God in such affliction and hard times as Paul and Silas did? But we see from these two, two quick examples that in all circumstances, in all places, and in all times, our response to God working in our lives should be a response of praise. And He is deserving because He is Savior. What does Jude say in verse 25? This is how he describes the Lord. He says, Our only God and Savior. Or in the New King James rendering in verse 25, it would read, To God our Savior, who alone is wise. Should not the fact that Christ is Savior elicit great praise from those whom He has saved? Think about if you are walking down the street and you're paying attention to your phone and you walk in the middle of the street and here comes the bus coming to hit you. And someone reaches out, grabs you, and pulls you back. Think of the praise that you would offer to that person. Thank you so much. I owe you my life. But the one that we do actually owe our life to, we're neglectful to praise Him. The one who has saved us through His death. And praise should be something that we engage in constantly, not just on Sundays. We all have much to praise God for. Our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, all the blessings and benefits that flow from these three things. The ability to pray to God. The assurance to know that He is listening to us and that He responds. Praising God for our daily bread, both physically as well as spiritually. To know that He gives us all that we need to walk His light in this crooked generation. If we did not have God's grace set upon us each day, we would live just like the unbeliever. And so all these things I I listed here are reasons that we must daily praise God. For Christ doesn't take a break. He is daily, continually before the Father, presenting His atoning work before His eyes. And so we likewise should take the time daily to praise God. Yet in our praise of God, we likewise must acknowledge His glory, His majesty, His dominion, and His authority just as Jude did in verse 25 here. As he says to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. We are to acknowledge all of the divine attributes of God. And God has actually given us a book of praise. We have a book of praise in the Bible. It's called the Psalms. And we could open the book of Psalms We could close our eyes. We could flip through the pages. We could point our finger down. We could open our eyes. And wherever it is, we're going to find David praising God for what he has done for not only himself, but all of Israel. Here's just a few examples. Psalm 66, verse 2 and 3. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome your deeds. A little later, who rules by His might forever, who keeps watch on the nations. That's His dominion and authority right there in these few verses. Or Psalm 8, David says, O Lord, our God, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. Here David is recognizing God's glory and His majesty. Brothers and sisters, is this what our praise sounds like when we praise God? Or is our praise usually only about that which we have received from God? Certainly we ought to praise God for those things which He has given to us. But that's a secondary reason why we are to praise God. Do you know what the primary reason we ought to praise God is? The primary reason we ought to praise God is because He is God. Is because He is God. It is the duty of every living creature to praise God, even those whom He is not Savior to. We heard that in our call to worship in Psalm 150 today. So how much more should we, those partakers of His great covenant, those whom He has set His everlasting love upon, those whom He is preserving to the end, how much more should we praise God? This is the message Jude is conveying to the saints. Look, saints. Christ is preserving you to the end, no matter your circumstances, no matter what Satan, the world, your flesh, no matter if they all attack you, the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. For He is powerful, all-powerful, more powerful than anything that exists. So praise His holy name. And so what should this do for the Christian in our life? What should reading this text cause us to do when we walk out of here and go about our week? Well, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints should first, within our very souls, cause us peace and comfort, knowing that we will never be snatched from our Lord's hand. Our fears and anxiety, any unbelief, any uncertainty you might have, should diminish over time. Vanish, knowing that no one can pull us from the love of God. This is what Augustine said of this doctrine. He says this, Grace may be shaken with fears and doubts, but it cannot be plucked up by its roots. We may shake, we may decrease in faith, we may increase in faith, but we will be kept until the very end brothers and sisters. God will never lose us. We will never be taken from him. Yet what this also means is not inaction. Our response to this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints should not be inaction. Because if we are truly his, this should cause us to abound, to be stirred up with desire to search out his the scriptures to learn of all the promises of God, all that He has promised to give us, all that He has promised to do and to learn what our response ought to be, and then diligently exercising ourselves in obedience to all of God's commands, knowing that He will bring to pass all that He has promised. Yet also knowing that Christ is Savior and it is He whom we receive all the benefits and blessings Who better is it that we go to and ask for all that we need? If Christ is all-powerful, as Jude says, and we know it is true, He is, then, brothers and sisters, stop trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and power and go to the One who is the source of your strength. Seek out the Lord in prayer each day, for He is the fountainhead of all power and strength. And He will give to you all that each and every one of you need if you only ask. This is the very thing Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than you or I ask, according to the power at work within us. And that power is the means by which we are kept in the faith. The perseverance of the saints being accomplished by the One who is able. For Christ is equal in power with God. He is God. Yet He is man, and as that God-man, in the person of Christ, He is also Savior. He is the mediator of the New Covenant for all those who believe. And so the question this day is, do you belong to Christ? Are you members of the New Covenant? For many will say in the last day, Lord, Lord, just like these false teachers. They claimed the grace of Christ, yet in word and in deed, they denied Him. But for you and I, brothers and sisters, if we confess Jesus as Lord and we believe that God has raised Him from the dead, then we will be saved. This is the promise of God. And you can know that you are His for certain. And so if you do not believe this day, repent of your sin turn to Christ and cleave to Him and His merits alone. If you are a believer, cling evermore to Christ, firmly believing that you have been saved by grace through faith and He who has saved you is able to present you before the presence of His glory with great joy. Remember, brothers and sisters, judgment isn't something to be scared of. It's going to be joyous for you and I. Only those who have denied Christ in word and deed have something to fear and tremble about. For they may be living the fun life now, as these uh, false teachers seem to be doing. They were gratifying all of their desires they wanted to. But our God reigns forever. And when He returns, we will reign with Him. And He will come to judge all unrighteousness. And so we ought to conclude by praising our Lord, yet we also ought to conclude with a hearty amen, just as Jude concludes here in verse 25, "To, be, to the Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. This isn't just an amen" as in "I agree. This is an amen saying everything that has been said is certain and it will come to pass. Because as Jude says, we serve a God who is omnipotent and who is able. And so we as believers, with Jude and with all the saints, upon hearing this great glorious message of what Christ has done and will do, we close together with an Amen. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. For Your Word, which even in such a perverse and crooked generation with all the temptation that surrounds us, You give us Your Word and Your promises that we can look forward to that heavenly inheritance. Although we might deal with persecution or affliction, those around us seem to be having all the fun. We know that it will come to a swift end and that we will be those who will be joyously praising You with all the saints together forevermore. We thank You, Father, that You have given us and granted to us that saving faith, that You have allowed us not only to know and discern Your truth, but we have experienced Your truth. We have experienced the change of our lives of that turning from sin, from desiring and and enjoying our sin, to now hating our sin. Now we desire to do those things which please You, Father. And so we ask that all that we have learned this day You would uh, apply to our hearts, that You would keep at the forefront of our minds as we go out this week, and that we would execute it in our lives, that we would be building ourselves in the faith each day that we would be keeping ourselves in the love of God. But we know that we only can do so because You have granted us the variability by Your power and strength. And so, Father, we thank You for this. And we pray this in Your Son Jesus' name. Amen.